Hello, and welcome to the Orthopod. My name is Liam Fernando Canavan. I'm a medical student at the University of Melbourne, and this is a podcast where I'll take a history from experts in orthopedic and musculoskeletal medicine. Dr. Alessandro Bruschi is an orthopedic resident at the Rizzoli Orthopedic Institute in Bologna due to finish his training in 2023. Dr. Bruschi's interests are in orthopedic oncology and sports traumatology. His penultimate year of orthopedic training will involve coming to Melbourne for a fellowship at St. Vincent's Hospital and hopefully starting a PhD in orthopedic oncology. Welcome to the orthopod, Dr. Bruschi. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure for me to participate in this podcast and above all for being called an orthopod. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So can you tell me about, so we're in, I'm in Italy at the moment, luckily. And um, can you tell me about the, the, where where did, where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? These sort of things. Yeah, for sure. We are in Bologna now, but I'm not, uh, I was not born here in Bologna. I was born in a little city in the hills in Marche region. Uh, It's called Fossumbrone. It's a very little city, but I grew up in Fano. Uh, there is a city in Marche region. It's a little city on the Adriatic coast, and it's a beautiful city. I really my, miss my, my hometown because it's a city on the seaside. Uh, it's like 60,000 people, uh, but it's very relaxing, and I got there my family. So it's one hour and a half from Bologna, and when I can, I always go back home and... I suggest everyone to, to come visit Fano because it's very, very good. It's the city in which uh, we have the oldest carnival in, in Italy. And uh, we have the longest Roman wall after Rome. So it's something that, of which we are very proud. <laughs> and we even have a, a middle-aged part uh, of the city. So I think it's magical. So I, I really miss my hometown. And um, tell me about this, the, you know, you went, where, where did you go? You went to school in this town as well? Yes, I went to school in Fano. Uh, I was in scientific high school. Uh, here in Italy, we don't have uh, just one high school. We have some different focus uh, depending on the high school you choose. I, I, I choose the scientific high school because I was very interested in uh, physics, in biology, and I wanted to be an engineer when I was when I was a child, and uh, my dream was to be uh, a soccer player, and uh, as well to be an engineer. So I didn't know what to choose. So until the age of 14, 15 years old, my dream was to play uh, the, the FIFA World Cup final in the stadium I built as an engineer. <laughs> <laughs> But then I had to realize that I was not so good in mathematics. So <laughs> I, I had to, to, change my, to change my mind. And until 18 years old, I really dreamed to be a football player. I was not enough good for, for going on. So uh, I, I decided to. I was good in scientific high school. So I decided to go for, for that kind of career. Okay, so you know, you obviously you're now well into your career as a doctor. Um, but before you become a doctor, you have to get your medical degree, which is six years uh, in Italy. Can you explain to to us what what do you have to do to get into a medical school in Italy um, out of high school? And tell me about the university that you went to. Yes, in Italy we have this organization. When you finish high school, 
you have to do a test, a very hard test. I studied all, all summer after, my, after the end of, uh, of high school. And uh, it's a test on biology, uh, biology chemistry, uh, mathematics and physics and co general culture. So we have this test for each university. We have 49 medical schools in, in Italy. Well, in my university, we had 150 places. But it's very hard. You have to study a lot. You get inside. So uh, you begin medical school in Italy with very, very satisfied, very happy about that. And then... How, when, did you, when did you first get into the hospital, for example? Okay, it's six years divided in uh, three years of preclinical subjects and then three years uh, of uh, clinical subjects. So you're going to study hospital at the, the fourth year. You have the main um, the skeleton of a medical degree in Italy is composed by anatomy in the first and second year, then physiology, then pathophysiology at the third year that... Uh, introduces you to the clinical part and then you've got pharmacology and that you finish with uh, pathology there's a very big exam in Italy uh, because it has a lot of link with uh, even with clinic and uh, so this is a skeleton and throughout all this path you got all the the preclinical subject in the first in three years and then all the uh, specialties uh, along the last three years. And where was the university that you went to? My university is in uh, Ancona. I, I think it's 40 minutes uh, by car from Fano, from my hometown. It's like two hours from Bologna. Even Ancona is on the Adriatic coast. I'm really linked to Ancona because I, I spent there six years uh, from 20 to 26 and uh, I had a lot of good memories with my friend and uh, it's, um, I really like Ancona. But then I decided to, to come to Bologna because I really like orthopedic and uh, oncology. I spent two years in medical oncology. My thesis for, for the degree was in medical oncology. But uh, I, I wanted to do the orthopedic part as well. As a football player, I'm for sure interested in all injuries, sports traumatology. So I decided to mix the thing and I, I knew that in Bologna there, were, there was a, a word of oncological orthopedics so I decided to try to go, to go in and here I am. <laughs> Something that I've talked about before on the podcast with two of my friends is ACL oh, rupture yeah. that they, like yourself, were both pretty good, pretty good athletes. One was a cricketer, you know, your new favourite sport and um, <laughs> the other one was a, 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 a real footballer, not soccer. Um, and, and they both had serious, serious injuries that were yes. unable to continue to play sport, but they've now transitioned into phases of their life where they're successful, whether it's in business or in, in teaching and with their families and so on. Um, but you've also experienced having, um, having an ACL. Could you, could you tell me about that? Yes, unluckily I have to tell you that I had two bad injuries to my ACL. As I said before, I, I still play football, uh, soccer, sorry. <laughs> uh, but uh, in 2016, I had my first ACL rupture. It was an isolated rupture. Uh, I think that I already had it injured. Thinking about the past, I think that I had uh, some twisting injuries that uh, injured my, my ACL. And it, I had this first rupture in 2016. I came back in 2017 to play. And uh, I had no problem until May 2021. And uh, one, one day I had a long day at a hospital 
and I was very, very tired. But I wanted to go to go play uh, anyway. Uh, but I, when, it, when, when I got inside the field, I was so, so, so tired. And then after 10 minutes, I had this terrible twisting movement of, of, of the knee. And I suddenly and immediately understood that I had some, some very bad injury to, to the knee. So I had a, a new rupture of the ACL. Your first reconstruction was with a hamstring yeah, tendon Yeah, the first graft. reconstruction was a, a ham, hamstring tendon graft. Uh, so the, I broke it and uh, I even broke my, my lateral meniscus and uh, I had a problem in the condyle, uh, osteochondral um, uh, rupture. I twist and I injured even the medial collateral and the, the screw, part of the screw that was uh, used for my, my previous, uh, the, for the reconstruct ACL was, uh, was inside the knee after the twisting movement. Oh, so right. it was very bad. Uh, I reconstructed in uh, six months ago with an allograft, with a posterior tibial allograft. Uh, I had a suture of the meniscus, and now I'm planning to to come back in the field uh, um, in uh, in two months, but this time not in uh, soccer, in cricket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. No, no, yeah. I want to I want to come back playing football because. <laughs> Uh, we, we, this year we have FIFA World Cup, so my, my, dream, my dream was to play yeah, FIFA World Cup. Get, yes, yeah. I'm sure you could have yeah. engineered one of the Qatar yeah, stadiums. But, yeah, <laughs> yeah, but, but I'm, I'm humble. I don't want to play anymore in my stadium. <laughs> right, so do you feel like for your experience having ACL reconstructions, being an inpatient helps you deal with, you know, you, you've seen that side of things as a doctor. Do you think it makes you a better doctor understanding how patients feel? Yes, yes, for sure. It's, it's easy to say for sure, the, mainly for two reasons. The first one, understanding the pain. I had so much pain above all in the first reconstruction. Uh, this I had is a post-op pain? Do you yeah, post-op pain due to a hematoma in the, the first reconstruction. Uh, I didn't have this problem uh, six months ago because today I do it as, as my job, man, as hematoma, so I understood what to do. But when I was a medical student in 2016, I had this problem and I had so much pain, so much pain. It was a, it was a big problem. So first of all, for the pain, for understanding when a patient said he has pain, this is something very important to, to, to treat. And then for being someone who hears what the patient has to say, okay, I want, I had some problems and I had my, my surgeon, Dr. Chiellini, a surgeon from my hometown, and he taught me how to relate to patient uh, when I was a patient. So uh, these are the two elements that uh, I understood by being a patient. And, and those ACL ruptures, these, these sports traumas, do, did they influence your decision to become yes, an orthopedic yes, surgeon? Yes, yes for sure. Uh, the, the choice of orthopedics is, uh, is linked to the many injuries I had. I, won't, I wouldn't say uh, the ACL rupture because I was interested in orthopedics since I was uh, a child. When I was a child, I, was not, I didn't know orthopedics existed. <laughs> I knew just about a physical therapist, and uh, I, I, I was interested in, in, that, in that topic because I had so many injuries. Uh, they prevented me to play. I wanted to play, but I couldn't because of the injuries. So for sure, uh, football, uh, soccer uh, helped me in, in uh, understanding that I wanted to treat people with uh, 
problems with musculoskeletal system. Then in high school I was interested biologically with oncology, uh, so I decided mm. to mix the thing. So, you know, you're now in that, you know, you're realizing your, your career, what you wanted to do. But once you finish medical school in Italy, you have to, you, you don't go, you, you can go straight into specialty training, can't you? You have, for, for getting to specialty training, you have to, to do a test. It's even harder than the, the test for getting inside medical school. I personally uh, think, think to the past, to that moment of my life is a good moment because uh, it was an emotional moment for me. Uh, but it's a national test in which almost 20,000 people try to, to get inside specialty. And uh, depending on the, the, the point you, you gain, you can choose what, what you want. For example, in Italy, the, the one that goes away for, uh, in, the, in, the few, in the first days is cardiology. Everyone wants to be a cardiologist. So for being a cardiologist, you have to do a very high high score. Orthopedics is a high high score, uh, but it's not impossible uh, if you if you want to be an orthopedist. So I, I studied a lot, and I was happy to to succeed it, uh, to have succeeded in that. Okay, so once you sit the test, you get in, and you know you're at Rizzoli, which is um, it's a very famous hospital. We've talked to Claudia Debella before, who did her training there and is a surgeon in in Melbourne now, but you're, you know, you're in, into your training now, you're, you're getting towards the end, you're in the fourth year of, of a five-year orthopedic training program, and you're currently doing your rotation in orthopedic oncology, which I think is probably where you're going to try and progress to um, once you finish your training. Can you tell me about what it was like when you started training in orthopedics and, and you know, to, what, what's it been like to where you are now today? When you got inside orthopedic training, it's like being you know, a soldier in the first year because it's very tough as a it's it's a it's a specialty in which sometimes you are treated like 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 a soldier treated in a, during war and uh, but it's very very important even for you for your mindset and uh, it has been tough at the beginning but um, again due to sport. I was used to, it was not a problem for me to deal with some situation, uh, arguing with someone if you need, and uh, discuss uh, with someone other uh, if needed. So uh, it was very tough from a human point of view. Mm. And, uh, but on the other side, uh, I can tell you that it was very, very fascinating starting to operate the first surgical procedures. And very, it's very emotional. So, do you remember your first procedure? Yeah, I remember. Yeah, I remember. It was a, a deltoid pectoral approach for a, a benign bone tumor, and I remember that the anesthetist said um, was uh, argued with the with the chief doctor uh, that let me do the, the surgical procedure uh, that we were in a hurry so she, he said that it was not the right day for uh, for making school <laughs> I was totally uh, I was very upset that day <laughs> because for sure it was low it was the first time I I had the knife in my hand but uh, <laughs> yeah I have a, a very beautiful beautiful memory of that day and uh, it was a success obviously 
it was successful, obviously, because in the end, the chief doctor had to be had to do the, the surgical procedure. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I just cut, and then I didn't. Oh, okay, so <laughs> I was not I was not so confident in what to do, but he helped me in in, yeah, okay. in in the approach, and then he finished. But then uh, I I for sure remember the, my first uh, uh, all time uh, surgical procedure, and it was it was a very good memory. It was. Like some days afterwards, that day, and uh, and it was a uh, you know benign tumor of the knee, and so I'm happy and it, it's it's cool about the first, even if thinking about the first year. Yeah, okay. But before you got to that stage, you know, what was it like? So you I think we were talking about this the other day. You start learning sort of general orthopedics, and then you progress. Well, <clears throat> it depends. It depends because it depends on uh, the rotation you choose. And for example, here in Rizzoli. Is different from many other hospitals because Rizzoli is an elective orthopedic hospital and you don't have traumatology. Traumatology is in Ospedale Maggiore, uh, so we, we start to do traumatology. You, you, I can almost certainly guarantee, and no one understood what you just said except for the, the very many Italian lists. This, actually, this podcast is actually very popular in Italy. <laughs> so tra- trauma is not at Rizzoli, it's at another hospital. Okay, you can do trauma in Rizzoli, but it's not the trauma center of Bologna. Okay. Okay, you do trauma. And what's the other hospital called? It's called Ospedale Maggiore. Ospedale Mazzoli. Yes, it's okay. like a major hospital. It's okay. The translation okay. is a trauma center of Bologna. We have another hospital in Bologna, is the Ospedale Sant'Orsola, is the hospital uh, linked to university. And um, the first uh, year I just did orthopedic oncology and sport traumatology. Then I was in Ospedale Maggiore for some months, for not for orthopedics, but it was uh, something we do, for example, general surgery, emergency care. And uh, so in the second year, I was in pediatrics, orthopedics, uh, again in oncological orthopedics. The third year was very cool for me because I have been so many months in Ospedale uh, Maggiore for, for trauma. And I'll be back in Ospedale Maggiore in March for eight months. Uh, and now I am in a fourth year in my rotation, my third rotation in uh, oncological orthopedics. And... Tell me, you know, what's, a, what's a, a, a normal week like for you as a resident? From contract, we have to do at least 38 hours, but I think that we uh, usually we do the, uh, at least 50, 50 60 hours per, per week for yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, we, me, managing oncological patients, I usually stay in hospital for every day 10 hours, yeah, okay. average of 10 hours. Uh, and, uh, but I hope that when I come back to play soccer in two months, I'll be able to, to organize better. <laughs> of course, of course. And get out before. Yeah, okay. I mean, there's one, I, I just, there's one thing I wanted to ask about Rizzoli, which you were saying the other day. So Rizzoli, there's two things. You, I'll let you explain them, but tell me about what do you do when you scrub mm-hmm. with the gloves and, and why? And what time do you start operating here? Okay, uh, it's very, very interesting, this thing about um, scrubbing and, uh, and, and the gloves. Uh, because usually in surgery and in orthopedics, when you scrub, uh, you've got, when you're, uh, you scrub, then you have to put the gloves. And um, usually the first hand you put is the right hand. 
But here in Rizzoli, we have to put the left hand before because one of the most important uh, orthopedic surgeon of his, um, uh, Rizzoli history was left-handed. So <laughs> we have got this tradition to, to put the left hand before. And it's, and it's very interesting. When we go to uh, in a surgical theater uh, outside of Rizzoli, uh, it's uh, it's interesting because the nurse said you you come from Israel, right? So left hand. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing is the time. So normally, I mean, it's, it's the same in Australia. You, yes. The operating theatres normally start about eight a.m., eight thirty, but here it's different. Yes, here as a resident, you have to be at a surgical theatre at seven, because we have got this culture in Ristoli that uh, the surgical theater should start at 7 a.m. Because in the ancient uh, surgeons wanted to, to do research or uh, their, to manage their patient during afternoon, uh, so they wanted to start before uh, <laughs> during morning so that they had more time for, uh, for, for managing patients doing research and I think this is one of the, the facts why Rizzoli became Rizzoli. Rizzoli is considered one of the most important orthopedic hospitals in the world. And um, I think that the reason, one of the reasons starts at 7 a.m. in the morning, every morning. So it starts before uh, many other hospitals. So that's why Rizzoli reached so many successes, even for, even for that. So outside of medicine, you've got some, some interest. You mentioned you grew up sort of being interested in engineering and... And sort of you know creating things and, and you have interests in in small business and startups and, and and app developing and stuff you're telling me so give me the elevator pitch for this app that you've designed yeah cool, cool. thank you very much so that i can <laughs> i can sponsorize my uh, my app um, we developed this app is an app for a smartphone you can um, you can download it from uh, android store uh, but it's the it's an app that helps clinician to calculate the right dose of drug to administer to patient with renal failure you know with that uh, with renal failure you have to reduce the dose of the drug but for understanding and for knowing how much is the right dosage you have to go on internet uh, to, to check guidelines. Our app just with uh, creatinine and the name of the of the drug and uh, an algorithm we developed uh, allow you to understand in 10 seconds which is the right dosage. Uh, it's, uh, it's called kidney dose. And uh, for, for checking in the uh, Android store, you have to, to write kidney dose. Uh, it's uh, not with space, it's, uh, it's one word. Yeah, one word. Uh, and the name of the of my engineer, my friend um, Riccardo Mincucci, that developed it, and uh, so I, I hope <laughs> it can be useful. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I, I know I've got it already. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Even though I have an iPhone, no, I'll I'll put a link into the uh, to the description of this episode so yeah, people can sure. find a download for it. So it's it's what's it called again? Kidneydos. Kidneydos. And the person that developed the app with you? Riccardo Mencucci. His name again? Riccardo Mencucci. Mencucci. <laughs> Mencucci. That's a beautiful surname. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's fascinating. And, and you know, you, you're building apps. You know, are there any other things that you're sort of interested in? Well, for sure. Uh, I know that is a good app, but uh, for, um, for one of my major interesting at the moment... That is the development of exoskeletons. Exoskeletons are... Like uh, Iron Man. Like Iron Man, yeah. <laughs> definitely like Iron Man. But I would like to be 
uh, to put um, on the market a competitor of Iron Man's <laughs> exoskeleton because if you know Iron Man exoskeleton is perfect for a Marvel movie but in real life maybe it's not so comfortable <laughs> so I think it's a point of, of weakness of this armor and uh, exoskeleton are uh, they help you to move okay they are movement facilitator I say uh, and um, I would like to to produce uh, um, an exoskeleton just with mechanical components using uh, elasticity property of, of materials. So I would like to, to launch a startup. Uh, luckily, as a resident, uh, I cannot be uh, an entrepreneur. And it is a big problem. And I, I'm trying to do something for, for this to change this law because it's, uh, it's a law of 1994. Oh, it's, it's, you're legally not it's allowed? Oh, it's so illegal. it's not that you're too busy. You're literally yes. not allowed to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh. I, uh, and uh, it's a 1994 law. Uh, startup didn't even exist. So it, it's, it's a problem for me, this thing. Uh, by now, I cannot do that. Uh, but I would like to, to, to launch a startup with, for the app and even for uh, this idea of exoskeletons. How, how do you begin doing I mean, have you got some, some partners, some friends involved? Or Yes, yes. I, I had this idea uh, when I was in uh, medical school. So I started to talk with, with, uh, with people. I had a course on uh, entrepreneurship uh, management uh, when I was in medical school. And uh, it gave me the possibility to uh, have contests. And uh, so I met a lot of people that suggested me to do this thing, this other thing for uh, deep in this, uh, this topic of exoskeleton. And by now I'm, I'm studying uh, a mechanical uh, exoskeleton as it was like three, four years that I was blocked with this project uh, with biomedical engineers. I decided to completely change and... Uh, uh, watching if someone in other other fields, for example, cars, had some idea, and mm. it gave me the idea using some materials they they use in uh, cars engineering, and uh, so I'm I'm really I really hope to to succeed in developing these uh, these these uh, at least a prototype in one year. Yeah, I would like okay. to do a and my dream is to make exosc mechanical exoskeleton. Uh, available as in shops uh, for uh, all the people uh, in in order to help them to move above all for uh, hip and uh, and ankle exoskeleton because the plantar flexion is very important during the during the, during walking so that if you have something that helps you to have a plantar flexion is more easy for you to move so. Uh, I, I hope that uh, this could be a, a good choice to focus on the hip and on the ankle. So it's, it's more about, I mean, when I think about exoskeleton, I'm thinking about like, you know, being able to grab something, you know, using your hands. But you're talking more about movement, yes. human movement is your interest. Yes, yes. I want to, I want to, my, my target is the uh, 80, 80 years old, 70 years old person who has got arthritis, he has problems to move, and they stay all day long watching TV because they don't want to move because they, they have difficulty to move. So I would like them at least to get up from the, from the sofa <laughs> and start walking. And um, I want, the problem of nowadays exoskeletons is that they are very expensive 
and they're not comfortable because mainly they're electronical and they're like Iron Man, they're not comfortable. So I would like to have something with less performances, but wearable and uh, that, can, that can help you anyway. Yeah, okay. I mean, we've talked about this a bit off the podcast, so I can sort of understand where you're going. Um, I've also read your, your paper that you published not too long ago, a couple of months ago, which was really complicated, but puts things in, you know, this sounds a bit sort of sci-fi at the moment, meaning it's, you know, like Star Wars or something, but, you know, th- th- what you're talking about is, is legitimate. You know, you've, you've done a lot of work into this and um, you're sort of more talking about, uh, rather than using the term exoskeleton, which is maybe sort of a, a common term, it, you're talking about neuromuscular prostheses is what you're referring to, you know, yeah. artificial muscles that are, that are actually controlled by a person's own nervous system. Yeah. Yeah, which definitely. is really, you know, really interesting stuff. And I will provide a link in the description to Thank the you. paper that you published. It's freely available with open access. Lucky you. So, and, and thinking about this, orthopedics makes use of things like joint arthroplasty, allografts, autographs, artificial ligaments um, for replacing bone and connective tissue defects. But, um, you know, what you're alluding to is there's no solutions for dealing with muscle or, or nerve loss, for example, in a, a paraplegic um, can you tell me, you know, sort of briefly summarize the research that you've done and, and talk about the challenges and the potential solutions available for replacing human muscle? Yeah, for sure, for sure. It's, to date is my biggest interest in uh, uh, research and uh, I'm very focused into it. I had a possibility to publish this paper. I worked a lot on that, two years uh, of hard work on uh, on developing the concept of neuromuscular prosthesis. Neuromuscular prosthesis is an artificial muscle controlled by patient nervous system. So it's different um, compared to the exoskeleton because exoskeleton is external and neuromuscular prosthesis is inside body. So I would like to create something for substituting muscle. As, a, as you said, we can substitute uh, joints with uh, arthroplasty, we can substitute even vessels, we can substitute uh, amputated limbs for, with uh, uh, external prosthetics, but we can even have many solutions for skin, but we don't have anything for nerves and muscles. So this creates a lot of problems in uh, traumas, in oncological surgery, in neuromuscular diseases, in uh, spinal cord injuries. So I, I wanted to study this, uh, the possibility for an artificial muscle. Today, there is no possibility to substitute a muscle because we don't have a proper product, uh, uh, an efficient uh, muscle to, to suggest to the clinical world. We have to create in the preclinical something that can be efficient because to date, an artificial muscle can, uh, can use like one kilo but it's, it's useless. So in this paper, I'm, it's a, a, a revision, a review of the, of the literature in which uh, we, we discuss every uh, different uh, techniques used for developing an, uh, an artificial muscle. Today, the one that seems to give the best uh, option for the future is a dielectric elastomer actuator with uh, nanostructure carbons uh, functioning as uh, electrodes. It means that you have many slices of silicon and the, at the opposite side of the uh, silicon you have the graphene layer 
function is uh, electrodes with opposite charge so that when the voltage is, uh, is given, the opposite charge are, uh, they, they, they produce contraction with the principle of the capacitor. And so... And the, the charge is the patient's own nervous system. It depends. You can have a seamless integration or a wireless integration for a clinical application. Seamless integration, I think, is very difficult because uh, seamless integration means that it's the nerve that provides you the difference of potential. And it's very difficult, even with uh, uh, some, act, some kind of actuators that uh, enhance the, the potential difference, uh, can have difficulty to understand that the voltage is given. I think that the best thing is to link the artificial muscle directly with the brain uh, through wireless, recognizing the part of the cerebral motor cortex, and then this is uh, coupled with the artificial muscle with the controller of the dielectric elastomer actuator. Uh, many th many people ask me how this is uh, the battery of this battery is wireless battery. Uh, through oscillator, you can you use the principle of the solenoid so that if you apply a magnetic field outside, you can have a, uh, an electrical field inside and uh, have to put it inside the body. You have to deal with foreign body response. So there are a lot of information even about that. I personally think the best thing is covering the, the electrical astroman actuator with uh, um, extracellular matrix. The extracellular matrix allows you even to, even to uh, avoid the problems linked to the voltage because it is very harmful for the mm. patient. So you even have to, to, to deal with that. It's incredible stuff. It's, it's hard to understand, but I think having read your paper it's sort of, and, and hearing you talk about it, it, it makes a bit more sense. Hopefully, I think you'll make a lot of money. You won't be an orthopedic surgeon if you can do that, but... <laughs> Um, you know, that's incredible. Good luck to you. And the very last question I've got. So you've been, I've had the pleasure um, of, of following you around in the Rizzoli. We watched an incredible surgery this morning with your, yes. your supervisor, Professor David Donati. And, and just like the professor and yourself, all of the doctors wear coats. Um, now, Australian doctors don't wear coats, as I've explained to you. I've unfortunately had to wear a coat I feel very <laughs> uncomfortable, very uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, although yeah. it is minus four degrees in the morning so it's it's nice to sort of warm up with a coat but I, as I said to you I'd save the most important question for the end and that is why should doctors wear coats <laughs> yeah I'm ready for that I'm ready for that but it was very interesting to to share this uh, uh, this topic with you because uh, I've never thought about that I've never thought about why we, we usually we used to to wear coats and uh, the reason why because is expected by the patients is for patients respect it's like a symbol it's like wearing a uniform it's like if you are in the street and you got robbed by someone and you need to be protected by the policeman you know and you're searching for someone and you you see the the, the police officer with the uniform and so you feel that this is the, the, the right person to ask. This is the same thing for us. It's like uh, a cultural thing for us that when you got inside hospital, patient expected to, to wear the white coat. It communicates that you're, you're there for them. You're in that moment, despite your private life, you, you're, you're wearing a uniform and your role in that moment is to be 100% for them. Okay, so the reason why is that for a patient respect 
and because it's uh, expected by the patient. And the interesting you said that is that if you wear coat in Australia, you're considered uh, that you, you think of yourself too much, right? Yeah, in Italy, it's the contrary. If you don't use the coat and you go uh, in, in, in the ward, in an outpatient clinic with, without coat, it's considered that you think yourself that you don't need the white coat for being considered a doctor. So it's the opposite. It's a cultural thing. And a very interesting thing is that when we in Rizzoli start uh, medical uh, orthopedic training, our professor uh, in, in the first meeting with us said we, that we have to, to wear dress coat for, uh, for and, and it's for patients. We, we should uh, wear tie, for example, uh, but, uh, but for sure he, he, he's right when he says that for patients we have to be careful even to this little thing, okay? And, and I'm sure it's, uh, it's something that patients appreciate. And uh, I, I even worked some, some, some time without coat, for sure, but uh, I noticed that if you know the patient, you don't have any problem. But if you don't know the patient, for example, you're in, this, you're in the first visit, uh, it's, it's a situation in which uh, patient notice that, okay? So the, the reply to, to this very interesting question, uh, <laughs> I would say, because it's like wearing a, a uniform. Yes. Okay? <laughs> well, the first thing you said to me when I asked, why do you wear the coat? You said, because it's elegant. <laughs> It's a very Italian way of explaining why you wear the coat. And it does look nice, but, geez, it feels very strange for me in Australia. <laughs> but thank you so much, Dr. Bruschi, for coming on to the podcast. To you. It's been thanks really to interesting you. talking to you. <laughs> thanks to you. Thanks to you. It's been a very big pleasure for me. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to The Orthopod. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram by the handle at SomaGradGroup or on our website, somagradgroup.com. See you in the next episode.